Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're joining us this morning. Uh, I see some faces I haven't seen before, so if you're a guest and this is your first time with us, welcome. So happy you're here. I want to encourage you, if you haven't gotten it yet on your way out, to grab one of our welcome bags. Those who are sort of, uh, who've been with us for a while know I always say this. I say uh, it's not just about us getting information to you, but it's also a way for us to bless our community because in those bags, uh, we have products that we've purchased from local businesses that we want to gift to you. What is new is I saw that this week, in addition to honey and coffee, we have barbecue sauce in there. Uh, I think I might have to pretend I'm a visitor today. Uh, so we've got some local barbecue sauce over there from the folks at Kakalaki. So um, make sure if you are a guest, uh, grab one. And I know I often say, for those of you who don't remember if you ever got uh, a bag, make sure you, you, can, you can go ahead and grab one. But I know that if the bags all disappear this week, lots of us were practicing selective memory loss. <laughs> so, Hey, do you know anyone who's ultra competitive? Do you know anyone who is like super serious about competition, and if there's any possibility that there could be winners and non-winners, that person is trying to be in the winner category, and no matter how low the stakes seem to you, to them the stakes are always high. That kind of ultra-competitive can be uh, damaging in certain situations, but it can actually be helpful in a number of situations. Uh, In fact, some of the most successful competitors in pro athletics are ultra competitive. They are super serious about what they do. Uh, One who was known as being an intense competitor during his time in professional leagues was a man by the name Kobe Bryant. And this is Kobe uh, at the press conference after game two of the 2009 NBA finals. And you can see that intensity full on display. Now you may think by his expression that his team lost, but no, his team won. The Lakers had won. In fact, they had gone up 2 nothing in a best-of-seven series. Um, Kobe's at the press conference. He's engaging, but this is how he looks the whole time. And a reporter decides to ask him about it. He says, Kobe, you're up 2-0. What's the story? Are you, ha- are you not happy? And Kobe responds to him, what's there to be happy about? And the reporter says, well, you're, you're up 2-0. And Kobe replies in typical ultra-competitive fashion, the job's not finished. Is the job finished? I don't think so. Now, a week later, Kobe is looking very different at the post-game press conference, (laughs) right? He's all smiles as the Lakers closed out the series to win the championship. This was Kobe's first championship as sort of the the irreputable best player, uh, irrefutable best player and leader of the Lakers. He'd come up short the year before. And with this win, his legacy as one of the great Lakers, but also one of the greats in the sport of professional basketball is secure. And you can see some of the significance of this moment in that smile. You can see some relief, some delight, some satisfaction. It's as if, okay, It's okay. Things are secure now. Now, we may never be in a place uh, to win or in a spot like Kobe was, but that smile and what it represents, it's not exclusive to the world of professional sports. Don't we all want days where we can experience the type of situations that produce those kinds of smiles? 
that evoke those kinds of feelings, those kinds of emotions, that sense of relief, that sense of satisfaction, that sense of delight. So how do we get there? And once we get there, how do we extend our time there? So we're not just having those kinds of smile moments once in a blue moon or maybe once in a lifetime, but we're actually there on an ongoing basis. We're in a series uh, here at Chatham Community Church that we've titled Age to Age, The Big Story of God's Faithfulness. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at the arc of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament between a few weeks ago when we started and the end of November. So if, you're, if this is your first time with us and you want to catch up, the sermons are online. I'd encourage you to go listen at them. What we want to do through this series is a couple of things. The first thing we want to do is we want to organize the mental closet of the Old Testament. Where are things happening in comparison to each other? What's going on in the history? When we read about certain places or certain names, when is it happening? And so we've given you a bookmark. It's on every other seat, uh, and you can grab it if you didn't bring yours. If you did bring yours, or if you have one already, I encourage you to bring it back. We want to organize what is going on in the Old Testament, and I'm going to give us a hint of how we're going to do that in just a second. The other thing we want to do through this series, besides sort of give us a sense of what's going on in the Old Testament, is we want to reframe or invite us to reconsider the image that we get or that is sort of is popularly understood of who God is in the Old Testament, this image of an angry and spiteful God. Actually, what we'll see as we look at this narrative arc in the Old Testament is that the God that comes across in the Old Testament is consistent and the same as the God that comes across in the New Testament. It's a God or he's a God who is faithful to the promises he makes to his people, even when they are unfaithful to him, even when they don't fulfill their end of the bargain. Now, today's passage, the passage that we read, that Hillary read for us, and that she helped, up, helped set up for us, occurs in the section on this bookmark that says, United Monarchy. It's right there between settling in the land and the part that says Israel and Judah. So that helps us locate ourselves sort of chronologically in the ark. But I want to do a little bit more than that. I want to also help us understand what books are of the Bible we have covered so far and which ones are covered in this period of time. So here's something that if you have your bookmark, you can add. You can see that Genesis happens, uh, uh, that Abraham's family, we read about that in Genesis. Uh, we read, uh, we get Gen parts of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sort of in that Abraham's family, all through slavery in Egypt and Exodus. And then in the settling of the land, we get books like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, those books are there. And the time that we're reading in the United Monarchy is one of the more fruitful literature parts of the history of the people of Israel. So you get uh, the books of Samuel, parts of Kings and Chronicles, the Psalms, parts of the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Uh, many of these books are poetic books. So you see that this is a season where sort of culture is developing, it's being settled, it's being communicated. And that conveys a sense that this is a time where the people sort of are in a good spot. In fact, this era in Israel's history is thought of as the pinnacle of ancient Israel, the high point for their time. Um, the people are settled in a land. 
A dynasty is established. They have trustworthy guidance and leadership, not just from the Lord, but also from the leaders that are in place. A temple is built. No longer are they sort of in in sort of a religious structure or in a religious system where the structure is mobile and inconsistent. It is in one place. And God's presence is indwelling that place. God's presence is there. And when we read in this passage, celebration is happening. A party has broken out. People are overjoyed, overjoyed. It's one of those moments where you could imagine that the people are smiling, kind of like the picture that we saw, because they're experiencing a sense of satisfaction, of delight, a sense of rest, a sense of relief. And so in the midst of all that, as, as, as the priests bring the ark of the Lord into the holy place, as the presence of the Lord so fills that place that people can't do anything, it is so thick and so heavy, so evident that God is there. Solomon, the king, prays a prayer. And Hillary read the first part of that prayer. And what we're going to do today is look at parts of that prayer. Because in looking at that prayer, we get some insight We get some insight as to what it took to get to that moment in the history of ancient Israel. What it took to get to that moment of deep relief, of deep delight, of deep satisfaction. What do you do once you get to those kinds of moments? What will it take to keep it going? And what happens if things change? What happens if you find yourself no longer in that kind of moment, but actually in completely the opposite kind of moment? First, we're going to look at uh, portions from the start and the end of his prayer. Here is what Solomon says. Lord, the God of Israel, and we read this already, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. He says that at the beginning, and then at the end of his prayer, he again sort of brings up this theme as he says, praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. One of the first things that Solomon does as he is reflecting and praying in light of this wonderful moment of rest, of satisfaction, of delight. And one of the last things he does as he's reflecting on this moment is he connects their current state to God's character, to God's faithfulness, to God's promise-keeping. He is saying, we are here because God brought us here. We are here because of who God is. We have arrived at this place because God has been faithful, because God keeps his promises. The Lord has indeed given his people rest. At this time, they are an organized people, a community interconnected to each other. They have settled in a land where they had previously not been settled in a land, which means their enemies have been pushed back. Their borders are secure. There is safety. There is rootedness in this place. They have reliable leadership and guidance, and they are organized around the presence of God, especially in this moment. The presence of God is the central thing that is inspiring this moment of rest, of relief, of satisfaction. God has been committed to keeping his promises to them, and they have committed committed to keep their promises to him, and they find themselves at this place of rest. The Lord has brought them to this moment. Now, 
If you read sort of the, the, the Old Testament before this moment, you know there's been a significant amount of time between when promises were made and this moment. It has not been a short, straight line. Lots of stuff has happened. It has been generations since Abram was given a promises. But where they are now is an outworking of those promises made long ago. And the fact that those promises not only got passed down from generation to generation, but that the Lord continued to visit his people and reiterate his promises to them. God is still doing that kind of work. God is still doing that kind of promise-keeping kind of work because the God who was faithful in the Old Testament is still the God who is faithful today. We have access to similar things that the Israelites are enjoying, even if it doesn't look exactly like it did for them. We have access to community. We have access to a sense of interconnectedness. We have access to a sense of settledness, of peace. We have access to guidance. We have access to the presence of God, not only in a place, but indwelling in us. And we have an invitation extended to us as it was to the ancient Israelites, to respond to the faithful God by being faithful to Him. We can come to those moments of rest, those moments that produce those kinds of smiles. The Lord is still doing that kind of work. He is still granting that. And part of what enables us to get there is summarized in one word, trust. Trust that God's faithfulness will bring us to times of rest satisfaction, and delight. Trust, because we don't always find ourselves in those moments. And when we don't find ourselves in those moments, we may be tempted to believe that we need to make our own way to the places of rest, to the places of satisfaction, to the places of delight. We may think that we need to rush ahead of God's plan, and yet the invitation is to trust, to trust that God's faithfulness will bring us to those times of rest to those times of satisfaction, to those times of delight. God has continued to show himself faithful through history. We don't need to rely just on these ancient stories. Throughout history, God continues to show his faithfulness in bringing people to these kinds of moments. And we can trust that the God who brought those people to these kinds of moments, the God who brings people around us to these kinds of moments, will bring us to those kinds of moments. God shows this most powerfully through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, there is an establishment of a new community. That's one of the things that Jesus, he gathered people around him, and his invitation was to continue to gather people to a community that is defined and lives under his love and guidance that follows him as Savior and Lord. Jesus calls us and grants us this new community. Jesus promises to give us rest. There are scriptures where Jesus is talking to people and he promises rest. Promises rest to those who follow him. He sends his spirit before he ascends into heaven. He promises that he will send his spirit and that that spirit will guide us into truth. We have access to reliable leadership and guidance through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And most powerfully, Jesus reconciles us to God. Jesus reconciles us to God. There are many factors that lead us to not be in places of rest and satisfaction and delight. And we're going to talk about a few of those in a moment. And I'll touch on one right now. But one, Because one of them is that we get ourselves out of places of rest 
and delight and satisfaction. We veer away from the path God has for us. We veer away from the good God longs for us. We turn our backs to God, and yet Jesus bridges the gap. Jesus makes a way for us to come home. Jesus makes a way for us to remain home. Jesus puts things back together. And if he's done all that, if he's bridged the gap between humanity and God, if he's granted us a new community that is bound together by something much stronger than national bonds, that is bound together by something much stronger than familial relationships, that binds us together by something much stronger than political affiliation or regional preferences, if he's done all that, if he's done all that, then we can trust If we don't find ourselves right now in places of rest or delight or satisfaction, then Jesus is and will bring us to them. That he can, because he has, and he will continue to do that. He has, and we continue to do that. Why was this rest delayed so long for the ancient Israelites? Why do we find ourselves often feeling like there is a gap between the times when we have those kinds of smiles, those kinds of moments of rest, delight, and satisfaction. Why does it feel like we spend long periods in places of unrest, in places of dissatisfaction, in places of drudgery? While there may be many factors, I want to highlight three, three possibilities that keep us out of places of satisfaction. One is external resistance and opposition. We are affected by the things that go on around us. And sometimes people intentionally or not, sometimes circumstances intentionally or not, conspire against us being in a place of satisfaction and delight. People do harm to us. We are affected by the realities of our world. Sometimes that keeps us out. Sometimes it's inner rebellion. It's our own strong-willed sense that says, we know better. We know how to get to the place of rest. We know how to get to the place of delight. We know best how to achieve long-term satisfaction. And we strive and strive for that, and we remain in drudgery, unrest, and dissatisfaction while God is saying, I have it for you. Would you trust? And sometimes there is a process of refinement that is happening. There are seasons where we may feel like we are in unrest, that we are in dissatisfaction, that we are in drudgery. And really what's happening is God is refining us, refining our character, refining our sense of self, refining our understanding so that when we come to places of rest, we could truly enjoy it, truly delight in it, truly be present. And through all that, God remains faithful. The rest may seem delayed, but the rest is never thwarted. God's promise of rest to us, God's promise of rest to the world is not thwarted. It is never completely out of reach. When opposition is overcome, when we move from rebellion to alignment, times of rest are never far off, even if it takes some refining to enjoy it. So what do we do when they arrive? What do we do when we find ourselves in those moments of rest of satisfaction, when we have those kinds of smiles like that picture we saw. Well, let's follow the example of the ancient Israelites. When we come to those times, remember what and who got us there and respond in praise and gratitude. Remember what got us there. Remember who got us there and respond in praise and gratitude. Now, the Israelites had a part to play 
in getting to this point in their history. Solomon had a part to play. There had to be some collaboration as covenant partners that they are with God, but their part alone wouldn't have gotten them there. Without the Lord and His faithfulness, this moment would have never happened. Without the Lord calling and covenanting with Abram, there wouldn't be a people to be in this land. Without the Lord delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and protecting them from their pursuers, they wouldn't be secure. Without the Lord calling a king after His own heart in David, when they had longed for a king that was in the fashion of the other kingdoms that they saw, they'd be under a different kind of rule. So Solomon praises the Lord. The people praise the Lord. And on more than one occasion, he highlights that this moment of rest came because God is a promise keeper, that God is faithful. He wants the people to remember who brought them there. In 1997, Fred Rogers, who may be known to some of us as Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Daytime Emmys. It was one of those moments where you could see the satisfaction in his face, that kind of smile, that kind of delight, that kind of joy. And he starts his speech by acknowledging the many people that helped him get to that place. And then he does something interesting. He asks the audience for 10 seconds of silence. And in those 10 seconds, he says, I want you to think of the people who helped you get to where you are. And the emotion in the room is palpable. Because for most of them in their careers, even the lives that they're living as professional actors, directors, producers, writers, these are places of delight, of satisfaction, of achievement. And they start to recall. And as they start to recall, you can see as the camera pans and you can hear, people start to cry. People start to get emotional. Likely, some of them are crying in gratitude. Gratitude at being given space to remember because we don't always get space to remember. Maybe some are grieving the fact that some of those people that helped them get there are no longer around, or maybe some relationships have been broken. But I wonder how many of them are weeping because it's the first time in a long time that they've thought of those people. It's the first time in a long time that they've acknowledged the people who helped them get there. See, friends, it's in those moments of delight, of satisfaction, and of joy and rest that we can become prone to overestimating our effort in bringing us there and underestimating the contribution of others. And it's a short leap from underestimating the contribution of others to underestimating the powerful hand of God. Remember. Remember what brings you. Remember who brings you to these moments of rest, to these moments of delight, to these moments of satisfaction. And when you find yourself there, respond in praise. Respond in gratitude. Part of what's making this a moment of rest is that they have the temple. And not only do they have the temple, but they've experienced God's presence filling the place. It's another marker of their settledness. The Lord is no longer showing himself to them by a, by a pillar of, of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. That's not how he's guiding him. Their worship is not organized around a mobile tabernacle. There is a permanent place with foundations laid and it feels like they have arrived. It feels like their wandering is done. It feels like they are established and permanent. And there is a great sense of peace in this. But there's also a potential risk. There's also a potential risk. And Solomon's prayer hints at it. He says later on in the passage, but will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer your servants pray toward this place. Solomon is acknowledging that there is a tension present in this moment. There is a tension between God's presence dwelling in the temple, but God also being uncontainable. There are things that the temple is and the temple isn't, and there is a danger in confusing the two. There is a danger in believing that because they have the temple, there is nothing else for them to aspire to, nothing else for them to do. They have arrived at the end of their journey, and now they have contained God. Now God is at their service. Here's what the temple is meant to be. The temple is meant to be an anchor point for individuals and the community. It's a place to go to, a place to pray towards, a place to anchor their faith and their religious practice as a community. This is a place that helps ground their understanding of who God is. It's also meant to be a marker. It is physical evidence that God has fulfilled promises. Anyone at any time in history could look to the temple and say that temple was once not there. The people who built that temple were once not in this land. They weren't even a people, and God did something. God promised and brought them here. It is a marker that God chose to dwell with them in a more permanent way. But it's also a reminder, a reminder of what it took to get there, of how God was faithful and how they exercised faithfulness also to God in return. Many of the feasts that would bring them to the temple throughout the year were about rehearsing the history of the time when they weren't a settled people, a time when they hadn't experienced rest, a time when they didn't have the temple, and it all brings them to this place. Their rituals, their celebrations are all about reminders. But the temple isn't the reward at the end of the journey with God, and God isn't the temple. And it's dangerous to confuse the two. It's dangerous to confuse the two. When you go on certain hikes or take certain types of journeys, you oftentimes encounter particular things. If you're going on hikes, oftentimes you encounter cairn markers. These are stacks of rocks or other sorts of objects. They are placed by hikers at particular points along the way. Sometimes it's a place with a nice vista. Sometimes it's a place to sort of sit down and rest and have a nice snack. It's a beautiful place. Sometimes when you're going on sort of a road trip or, or other thing like that, you will find, especially when you're going to particularly popular locations along the way, signs that will point you and say, this place that you're going to is that way and it's 25 kilometers away, or in our country it would be 50 miles away. That, I'm not saying that those are the same thing, just acknowledging that we do miles here. <laughs> just acknowledging. Not trying to make that type of conversion in my head. Now, those signs sometimes are decorated in really beautiful ways, and you have pictures of people who stand at these signs, and it says, you know, so long to Timbuktu, so long to South Africa, so long to wherever, and then so long to where you're actually going. And it's good to take pictures there at the Cairn Markers. They're beautiful locations, but no one confuses the Cairn Marker with the end of the hike, and no one confuses the signpost with the destination, even if the picture is nice even if the vista is good, even if it's a nice place to stop and take a break. They might be wonderfully beautiful places, but you don't end your trip at the Cairn Marker 
and the guidepost isn't the place that it points to. That's the tension that Solomon is trying to manage in this prayer. In acknowledging that the temple is there, that God has chosen to have his name dwell there, that God is placing his eyes in this place or placing his eyes towards this place. He is acknowledging a tension and a danger that they might think that this is the end and that is God. And friends, we face similar dangers as well. That tension, that potential danger exists for us as well, even if it comes in different ways. We can treat moments in our journey with God as if we have arrived and there is nothing left for us. Breakthroughs that we experience, maybe a baptism that we had, maybe that moment where we finally forgave, maybe that moment where we finally understood something about the Bible, maybe that moment when prayer became real to us. All those things are fantastic and good. Let me not, let me, let me not lead you to believe that, we're not, that they're not worth treasuring, that they're not moments of delight, that they're not moments of rest. They are, but they are not the end. And when we live perpetually on the spiritual glories of the past, we miss the gift that God has for us in the present. We miss the next place of rest, the next place of delight. We can also take places, objects, and ideals, and blessings from God, and so attach God to them that they become more important than God himself. Let me say that again. We can attach God to certain blessings, to certain ideals, to certain places, to certain situations, even to certain objects, to a degree that they become more important than God, than God himself. The word for us is similar to the word for the Israelites. Don't settle at the waypoint and risk missing the next leg of the journey. Don't make the sign into what the sign is pointing to. There's always more. There's always the next one. The waypoints are good. The signs are good, but there is more. They are not the destination. They are not the ultimate end of our faith. Now, Solomon's prayer is not limited to the people of Israel. He has in mind others as the temple is being dedicated. He says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come to pray towards this temple. Then hear... Then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house uh, I have built bears your name. And later on, at the end of the prayer, he says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is good and that there is no others. God's covenant with his people always involved blessing to others. From the initial covenant with Abram all the way through, there is always an aspect that God is covenanting with his people, that God is bringing blessing of his people because God wants to extend blessing to all peoples. They were never meant to be a special select group to the exclusion of others, but rather as a means by which God extended his invitation to all. His invitation to all. God is consistent in this in the Old Testament, and it's a value woven through the New Testament as well. Jesus talks about what we often call the Great Commission. He sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. 
And before he ascends into the heavens, he tells his disciples, wait here for power will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they're at, in Judea, which is in the region they are, in Samaria, which are the people who are somewhat like them, but they have tension with, and to the ends of the earth. God has always seen his blessing to a select group of people as a means not to make them exclusively the recipients of that blessing, but as to make them conduits of blessing to the world, to everyone else. God's faithfulness to us is always part of how he tells those around us that they can trust he'll be faithful to them. When people see God's faithfulness to you, part of what God is telling to them, especially if they have no connection to God, is give me a chance I can be faithful to you as well. In fact, I am being faithful to you. I am being faithful to you. So let's be mindful of how we tell our stories. This is something I have to tell myself often, often, because I often sanit or de-God my stories. You know, I'll tell stories to people who aren't in the church, and oftentimes I'll be like, I don't want to be weird or kooky. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want, you know, I don't want people to sort of look at me like, excuse me. And, and so I'm like, yeah, yeah, and things worked out well for me, you know, and these things happen, it's so good. And, you know, if I were to tell it to you, I'd be like, I prayed, God answered prayer, there was these blessings that came from other people, like, it was just fantastic, God was so at work. Why? Why do we rob people of the opportunity to hear how God is active in the lives of people? Because for many of them, they want to get to those places of rest. They want to get to those places of satisfaction. They want to get to those places of delight. And when we remove God from our stories, what we're telling them is all you need to do is do better, try harder, and be lucky. (laughs) And there is a God who is there willing to give them the rest that he's given to us. God's faithfulness to us, the faithfulness you've experienced today, this week, in the last quarter, the faithfulness that you experience tomorrow is part of how he's telling the world that he wants to be faithful to them, that he can be and is being. In fact, you being present in their lives is a sign of God's faithfulness to them because he wants them to hear the story. There are a number of sections in Solomon's prayer that sound a little bit something like this. When blank... Fill-in catastrophe happens because your people have sinned against you. When things happen, and it happens because we mess up, and that is a really odd thing to pray at a peak moment in the history when things are going well. But their path there was not a direct path. They messed up quite a bit. And Solomon seems to know that there's a possibility that they might mess up again and that there might be consequences. So he preempts that. He prays about it. Now, not everything that goes wrong in our lives is because we messed up, right? We talked about different things that might lead us out or keep us out of places of rest and satisfaction. But these are important moments to address because when things go wrong and we know that it's because we messed up, we know that we contributed to that, we might be tempted to believe that either we need to fix it on our own before we can get back to a good place or that we are lost causes, that there's no more rest for us. And in those instances, in that that prayer, Solomon asks God, he says, hear in those moments. When your people turn to you, hear them, deliver them, and restore them. 
He does that because he understands that the faithfulness of God is steadfast and reliable, even when ours isn't. So hear me again. If you're in a mess and you know that you caused it or contributed to it, God is not waiting for you to get your act together before he shows his faithfulness to you. God's faithfulness dial doesn't turn down when our faithfulness to him turns down. God's faithfulness to us remains consistent, steadfast, and reliable. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Turn to him. He will deliver you. The pattern in Old Testament and throughout history is that God intends to and does keep his promises. He doesn't turn away from being faithful, even when we turn away from our part. There are no lost causes in God's eyes. No one is too far gone. No one has messed up irreparably. You and I can turn, we can cry out, and God will respond in faithfulness. Now, God, now Solomon does pray, you know, those if we mess up or when we mess up kind of prayers, but he also blesses the people with what it's going to take to stay there. And I want to close the sermon with that blessing. His final blessing He prays what it will take to remain faithful to God. Here's what he says. Notice it's not a long list. He says, May your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his command. Note that he doesn't say, May you always get it right. May your heart be fully committed to it, to the idea of getting it right, to the idea of remaining faithful. May your heart be fully committed to remaining obedient to God. May you stay with that even in the times when you mess up. This is what got them to this point of rest, to this moment, to this era of satisfaction, of delight, and of celebration. And this is what it takes for us to both get to those places of rest and remain there. It's to stay in step with a faithful God, to set our hearts towards staying in step with a faithful God. We might not be in those spots of delight and rest every moment of every day. There are external circumstances that affect us, but we will return to them more frequently if our hearts remain fully committed to the faithful God, to follow the path, to be led by him, to walk the path set before us by Jesus. Let's believe that and let's follow him. Today we are following God to the table. We are following God to this remembrance that God set for us. This is a reminder, as we said last week, not only that God has made the path before us, the path that he made through his life, death, and resurrection, the path said that there are places of rest ahead for us. There are places of rest not only here in the temporal but in the eternal, but the path that says, I keep my promises. Those are the things that we remember at the table. Today, committing our hearts to following that faithful God is coming to the table. So today, if you want to say to God, I am fully committed, fully committed to this idea that you are a faithful God and to following you, I want to invite you to join us at the table. For that to be your act of celebration, for that to be your act of worship, for that to be your act that says, I may not be in a place of rest now, but by coming to the table, which is a place of rest, I trust that God will bring me there soon because he is bringing me there eternally. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you remain faithful. Thank you that you are trustworthy and good. Lord, as we come to the table, 
would we come as people who have seen you show your faithfulness and believe that we will see it again on an ongoing basis in our lives, that we would receive rest whether we feel restless now or are celebrating that we are in a season of delight and joy. We pray these things.